Hello, and welcome to the Pope Francis Generation, the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching, who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore, but who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, and today I am your only host. Dominic uh, was not able to make it. Um, so it's me and my my uh, good friend and ministry partner, Monica Pope, and we're just going to jump right in today. So I've known Monica for six years, seven years at this point. Um, here, let me read her bio. Uh, she's been doing evangelizing catechesis for 30 years in the Catholic Church. She has worked in Michigan parishes as director of catechesis, RCIA leader, and director of discipleship ministries. Monica has created family catechesis programs in several parishes. She's formed many dedicated and gifted Catholic disciples to be effective catechists. She's written and led hundreds of retreats presented for thousands of people, ranging from first, first communicants and their parents to senior residents at assisted living facilities to employees of diocesan chanceries. And she's a wonderful catechist uh, and friend and mentor. And I'm really excited. Today, we're going to be talking about um, a new retreat that we've written. So welcome, Monica. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, so I think it was six years ago that we first met that I went on that Kirkman encounter retreat, wasn't it? Was it, it was at least six years ago. I think you were one of our first groups, and that would have been seven years ago that we launched the first Kirkma. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So you launched in 2016. Does that sound right? Or 2017? One of those years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and I went at the time I was director of director of religious ed in my parish. I've been there just a few years. And it was a retreat for DREs. It was at the time for, well, it was um, the first iteration of that Kerygma retreat was for directors of religious education and for catechists. Yeah. So I was there and I remember not wanting to be there. Um, mm -hmm. We had friends visiting from out of state and I came some somewhat mm -hmm. somewhat begrudgingly and i was kind of a pain in the butt on the retreat as well i remember asking a lot of questions it was pretty challenging um you you became the urban legend we called you the holy heckler for a long time but they were great questions and they actually improved the retreat they improved the content of the retreat because the way that we were presenting we're like no no if well, first of all, let me say this. Your questions, some of them felt like pushback. Yeah, yes. And <laughs> that's which, not surprising. Right, which I've come to like expect. But um, that was pretty amazing because we really thought if people are not surprised, or challenged by what they're hearing here, they're not really listening. Or they just sort of tuned it out and they're thinking, yeah, this is, you know, we've heard all this. Um, so your responses were, I mean, they registered to me as uh, we're preaching this right. Yeah, and, um, and that sounds right, because it was about yeah. a year later where I signed up to be be formed as a presenter and one of the things that uh that that, that you and uh, uh tim carpenter who at the time was the director of catechesis at the diocese and co-wrote the retreat um you what you said was one of the methodologies for the retreat was to not use the church word but to yeah. like sneak up behind people with a description yes and surprise them with something new and that's exactly um I mean, at that point, I had heard all the church words. Right. Um, but what you what you guys preached was definitely surprising. Because the gospel actually is. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is shocking. Yeah. And I went away from that retreat when I attended. And... Re, I started rewriting uh, catechesis lessons immediately um, based on that retreat. And 
yeah, um, pretty much everything I write now is based on that retreat. <laughs> um, all, all my catechist lessons now. Um, so, okay, um, to not get too far in the weeds, okay. since then, um, I was formed as a presenter. And we've presented together at least at least 30 Kerygma Encounter retreats. At least. Um, over the past six or seven years, however yes. long it's Just been. some pretty big groups of people, too. Like yeah. Phoenix, Arizona, I should say, our Goodyear, Arizona group, that's a huge group. Yeah. 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 Um, so mostly in, in our diocese, but um, yeah, Goodyear, Arizona, outside of Phoenix, Green Bay, Philadelphia. Oh, we've been other places too. We have. Um, together, we've been other places, but Craigman Counter has also gone to uh, Wisconsin. I don't think you did the one with the um, the Catholic school group. Mm -mm. No. Okay. So um, we've we've been we've we're traveling. Yeah. yeah. And then this past year, well, just in the past few months, we've written uh, a new retreat called Destined, and. <sighs> That's kind of what I want to talk about. I want to do yeah. a couple different things. I want to okay. promote the new retreat. Yay. But also like dive into what makes uh, both Kerygma Encounter and Destined, which developed from Kerygma Encounter, um, what makes them different and what makes them surprising. Um, and maybe share some, mm. some stories about that along the way. Yeah, great. So I'll start off. Um, so the first retreat that we did was called Kerygma Encounter, and our new retreat is called Destined, a Kerygma Retreat. And I talk about the Kerygma a lot on this podcast. So what is it and why is it important? What is destined and why is it important? What's the Kerygma and why is it important? Oh, oh well, I was thinking that I wasn't going to have to answer that because... <laughs> You talk about kerygma a lot, but Pope Francis says that it's the first proclamation, not that it's first and we move on, but that we repeat it, we return to it again and again, and everything flows from it. What is the kerygma? The kerygma is the astonishingly amazing news that God the Son has come to rescue us, each and every all of us, from sin and death and for a share in the divine life of God himself. That's the kerygma. We've been rescued from and we've been rescued for. So to pick up on that reference to Pope Francis, uh, he says, in catechesis, we have rediscovered the fundamental role of the first announcement or the kerygma, which needs to be the center of all evangelizing activity and all efforts of church renewal. He says more, but I'm not going to read more. Um, Wait, hold on. That's what you do. <laughs> say Pope Francis quotes. Go ahead, read the whole thing. Read the whole book, Paul. Um, Go ahead. So what makes charismatic catechesis different? Mm. Mm. If what we're preaching and teaching isn't flowing directly from the heart and the energy of the good news of being rescued from and for, why bother? It's supposed to be trans. God did this to transform us, to change everything about how we are in this life. Um, if we're teaching in a way that that is not our aim, I, we shouldn't. I, I I remember thinking after I attended. Uh, the first Kerygma retreat, which is why I rewrote uh, my lessons immediately after, was I had gotten really good 
at talking about and teaching about the particular things of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I could teach about all the sacraments. I could teach about, right. you know, all the commandments. I could teach about all the specific things. But it was like I missed the forest because I was focused so, so much on those things. And the charisma was precisely the thing that connected all of them. That connected all of it. And gave all of them meaning. Yes. For the longest time, Paul, I thought that the 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 thread that hold that held everything together was salvation history and even that seemed like something is missing here but when i put together all of the pieces and they really were they were like separate pieces of formation how we prayed the rosary how we went to mass what the holy days of obligation were what the form and the matter and the minister of all the sacraments. Um, for the longest time, I couldn't connect them. And even the person of Jesus Christ himself, like putting that and putting him into the equation, even that didn't seem like it was connecting it enough. Like I didn't get it. So then probably about 20 something years ago, I came upon the term salvation history. And then things started to take more of a form because all of a sudden it was part of a story and stories like, right? We wanna tell the story. It wasn't until I understood and learned what kerygma was, same as what you're saying, that the lights went on in every single room. And I'll tell you how I came to understand that was my mentor. Um, her name was Barbara Morgan. God rest her soul. She was um, a professor at Franciscan University and helped to create their um, catechetical their catechetical department and degree. Their right? institute, yeah, right? Pretty much, yeah, right. So one of my bosses, um, a priest, a pastor said, I want you to go talk to this woman. So I would go talk to this woman who was back in Ann Arbor. So I'd go and talk to her and she would meet with me and she would almost quiz me, like, what do you know? How do you understand this? How does this sound to you? And she would then preach the kerygma to me. And I'm like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. At one point, she put her hand on the table. She said, you're not listening. And I was like, taken aback. I'm like, oh, well, I am now, right? She said, Monica. And she opened up Catechism of the Catholic Church, number one. And she started to read it. And I don't know, maybe she saw me kind of like glaze over because I'd read that before. And she stopped and she looked at me and she goes, I'm going to read it again. And she reads, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. In a plane of sheer goodness, freely created Monica to share in his divine life. By the time she got to the end of that first passage and put my name in it four times or five times, every time it said man or humanity, I was weeping. And then she looked at me and she said, now you understand. It changed everything. That changed everything. The kerygma that God the Father sent his son to rescue me from sin and death. Yes, I'd heard that. But for a share in his divine life. The second sentence was also like I felt the earth tip on its axis, I think. She read, 
That is why in all times and places, God draws close to Monica. Paul, everything I ever did was either running and hiding from God or trying to convince him to love me, trying to get myself all fixed up and go back and hope that he didn't notice that, yeah, in all times and places. So I was crying and she said, now you understand. I think that there were two specific things, um, or there are two specific things that I would say make charismatic catechesis different. And the first is precisely what you're talking about, that um, we hear a lot um, within Catholicism and then within Christianity in a more broad context. Jesus died for our sins. We hear that a lot. Um, and, you know, we're in the Easter octave. We just, like... <laughs> Uh, lived through all of that again, right? Through yeah. Easter and the Triduum. Um, the thing that I think the most immediate thing I walked away from that retreat with was that he saved us from our sins so that he could save us for the greater thing. The greater thing. The greater thing. Like saving us from our sins wasn't the greater thing. As, As if it wasn't great enough. Yeah. 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 And the greater thing is that actually God's desire is that we share in his divinity. And that's so much a desire of his that he doesn't stop drawing close to us. And that and and that was the connection point for me. So the lesson I was teaching a couple of weeks later that I rewrote was for confirmation candidates and their sponsors mm. about mm -hmm. confirmation. And I was going to teach them about the thing. And instead I step back and I'm like, wait, what's the sacrament about? Oh, this sacrament is about God giving us himself, the Holy Spirit, to make us like himself so that we could do the things that Christ yes, did. Mm. And all of a sudden that makes that sacrament different. Now it's not about a rite of passage. Now it's not about a ritual. Now it's not about making grandma happy. Mm -hmm. It's about God desires me that much. And he wants to do that thing. And it's not about earning it anymore either. Pass the test, answer the questions. It's, yep, jump through the hoops. It's not about those things. Yeah. It's about what God wants to do for the candidate, what he wants to give to the individual, what he has planned before the beginning of forever um, and desires to do. So confirmation preparation then- Looks a lot different. Looks a lot different because what that means is then we're trying to help individuals to understand what God wants to give to them and merely help them to learn how to receive that, to yeah. desire it and to receive it. Yeah. And the second thing that makes charismatic catechesis different in my mind, in that retreat it dovetailed with, at, th at that point I was <clears throat> just beginning to read um, Pope Francis's teaching and I had read his book, The Name of God is Mercy, which, mm. which, I, which I've talked about, talked about many times. Really? Um, <laughs> that surprises me, Paul. <laughs> I think you gave me that book. I read that book because yes, I think you I, gave it to me. I, I'm, I'm positive mm. I gave it to you. Okay. I think I, I have two copies on my okay. bookshelf behind right. me. Um, I read that book for the first time and I left that book saying, I want to believe the God that Pope Francis believes in. Mm. Because there was a part of me that recognized that I didn't. Absolutely. And precisely the difference between the God I believed in and the God Pope Francis believed in was that he believed that God was actually good. And that was the, that was the other connecting point. 
charismatic catechesis, the heart of it isn't just a story um, and isn't just this teaching about what salvation is. It's God's goodness and his desire for me and for everybody. But it's, it's, that, that he's actually as good as he says he is. To go back to Barbara Morgan, a subsequent conversation that we had, um, she would email me and she would say, come on Wednesday morning, I want to talk to you. And I'd be like, absolutely. I mean, whatever, right? There's something important we want to talk about. In one of those subsequent conversations, she said to me, Everybody believes we have a crisis of faith. I'm like, well, we do. She said, no. We have a crisis of hope. I'm like, what? She said, even the believer doesn't believe that God is good all the time. That's crisis of hope. That was another shift for me. It was really a challenge. I started to pray for an increase in the virtue of hope that I believe that God is as good as, as he is, um, that I count on him and trust him to be better than I could ever imagine. There's a, um, uh, a particular lesson from the book of Exodus that I first heard it uh, on the Bible project podcast and, I've started incorporating it into our retreats and it's uh, after Pharaoh lets God's people go. Mm. Um, he puts them through a series of, of, of three tests. Um, and, and when we think of tests, not like, you know, mice in a laboratory, but specifically um, God is trying to teach his people who he is, but he's precisely trying to teach them that he's actually as good and reliable as he says he is. So the first test is the crossing of the Red Sea. So God leads his people to the Red Sea. And I've told this story a million times. And Pharaoh's army is behind him and they're trapped. And they complain to Moses. And Moses says, God will save you. All you have to do is nothing. Just be, be still. still. To pass the test, all they had to do was nothing. And then God did this, you know, earth, earth shaking surprise, earth shaking miracle. And all they had to do was nothing. So then just a few days go by, if that, like, this is, you know, like the next chapter in the book of Exodus, right. they're in the desert and they're, and they're thirsty and they cry out uh, to Moses and they complain again. And they're like, there was water in Egypt. So what does God do? He brings water from a rock just out of nowhere. Like it wasn't like there was this secret well that people knew about. Mm. It was, there was a rock mm. in the desert. He made water come from it. And then, you know, a couple of days later, they're complaining because they don't have any food. And they're like, there was plenty of food in Egypt. So God sends miracle bread from heaven. But he like increases the test. He's like, I will give you enough for today. And just today. The laws of manna. Yeah. And don't collect any for the next day. Yeah. But of course they did. Right. Um, and it got filled with maggots and, and worms and, and stuff. But God was precisely forming the hearts of his people to teach them who he was. And who was he? He was a God who was good and a God who was reliable. Yeah. And all they had to do was nothing. All they had to do was trust. All they had to do was stand in horrendous crisis and yes yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 i mean it's it, like it, really it, bad stuff is yeah. coming down yeah. right yeah. all it, the chariots and charioteers all of pharaohs yeah. yeah 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 absolutely no water in the desert is a pretty big deal right yeah. but they just had to stand in the trouble and let god do what he does yeah, yeah. so i think that that precisely is something else that makes charismatic catechesis different. And you put this all together and it makes catechesis so much different than teaching content about the faith yeah. Yeah. or teaching apologetics about the faith. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it is, as John Paul II says in in Maketakizi Trade On Day, it's about bringing someone into in an encounter and into a relationship with intimacy. the person. Yeah, yes. with the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, we've been doing Kerygma Encounter. We've been leading these retreats uh, for several years. They have been, um, I mean, some of some of my most profound moments as a minister have been leading these retreats. But also the Lord has graced me as a presenter. I mean, at the beginning of every retreat, we would lead a prayer of forgiveness and you would mm -hmm. be the one often leading the prayer. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have anything else to do except pray it. So I'm, so, you know, I, I, I guess I could probably do this. Um, and those were profound moments of healing for me. Or oftentimes I'd be presenting and in my heart, I'm like, actually, I'm the one who needs to be hearing this as much as the people I'm telling this to. Oh, yeah. And that happens consistently and has happened consistently. Um, and that retreat has been a profound source of grace for me to present. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Every time we do it, I think... I can't believe that I get to do this. And I'm astonished at how God shows up for me too. I can see it in the people's faces. I can see it in the participants' faces. I can see them as they're praying through the, the opening prayer as they're becoming engaged with your, like you usually do the first talk and, and, and they start to lean in. I can see it in other people. And I'm like, but you're, you're here for me too, Lord. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's been profoundly good. Um, but the Lord has led us recently Mm -hmm. um, to write a new retreat that has similarities, but that also has distinct differences. Um, the big one being, um, over the past few years, I would say for me, probably since the pandemic, um, I have been, um, really interested and curious more than that, like more than intellectual thing, really drawn to, um, uh, the liturgy and understanding that I think for a long time, there were a lot of people who fought about the liturgy and I just didn't want anything to do with that. So I was like, well, I'll go to mass and whatever, but it wasn't something that I'd focused on. And um, I started listening to a liturgy podcast and just diving more into the liturgy. And then when the pandemic hit and liturgy, not having access to that in the way that <laughs> everybody had been accustomed to for so right. long. Um, yeah, just diving into also what's it mean to be baptized as a priest? What's it mean? What does liturgy mean when you're not gathered in a church? Um, so that was going on, but also, uh, you know, reading Sacrosanctum Concilium, and then Pope Francis released a document last year on the liturgy. That's, that's something that's been on the forefront been moving to the forefront of my mind and of my prayer and study for the past few years. Um, but you as well, like you wrote a, a family catechesis on the liturgy a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, the, well, what is it titled? I should know what I wrote. The Kerygma and the Eucharistic Liturgy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for both of us, that was something that we have, the Lord has been drawing us to for the past few years. And also a need that we saw as a lack, both as a lack, charismatic liturgical catechesis as a lack in the church altogether, but also a lack in the in the things we were presenting. Right? Yes. Um, um, as well. And Which and just, I thank God for. I mean, he was shining a light on what was missing. Yeah. And just a profound need. I mean, I remember... In those first few months of the pandemic, when things were just kind of, everything was kind of wacky. Um, 
like I was hearing people talk about, um, well, why can't we just have like drive through communion? Some places did. And I took a step back and I was like, what is that? Mm -hmm. That is the idea of drive through communion is so foreign yeah. to our, what we know liturgy to be. Right. That it, it just revealed this profound, like, uh, <laughs> A gaping yeah. hole. <laughs> gaping it was hole. just a gaping hole in what we understand the Eucharistic liturgy to be. Um, the pandemic definitely was a hinge for me too. Seeing and reading what people, I mean, we were, everyone was hurt. Everyone felt harmed. But seeing and reading what some people were proposing as solutions, right? like the drive-through Eucharist reception and things like that made me start think really quickly. I, I, I've prayed um, a morning offering almost every single day for decades. And amongst the first couple of words um, is the offering through the sacred heart of Jesus and in union with all the masses said throughout the world today. That kind of exploded in my head in, in during the pandemic, like wait in union with all the masses said throughout the world today. What does, what does that mean? And certainly we knew that priests were still saying mass every single day in their private chapels. That's things. right. Um, how does, how does that line up? That's what I, you know, I, you and I always, uh, you and I ask often the same kinds of questions. How do we connect these dots? And that was a dot that needed to be connected. Yeah what am I not thinking right about the Eucharistic liturgy? Um, and how does every moment of my day become an offering with every single mass prayed throughout the world today? Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that really hit me in those first few months of the pandemic, I mean, every Sunday we were doing, um, Within just a couple of weeks, my parish was able to get a uh, live stream um, mm -hmm. together to watch um, our pastor um, uh, do mass live. Um, so some Sundays, my family would do that. You know, <laughs> we'd like sh like stream it on our phone and then cast it to the TV yes. um, uh, and watch. I think the first couple of times we even like made the kids like dress up or like just some semblance of the same routine that we had. Um, and other weeks we just did, we either um, read the mass readings as a family for that mm -hmm. Sunday and did our own our own prayers, or we do morning prayer from later the hours for that day or something like that. We did, we tried a number of different things. But with all of them, what, what was clearly on my mind during that time was that, um, I have been baptized as a priest. Now that's distinct from someone ordained as a priest. Right. But I had been baptized as a priest and all of my family's been baptized. And I also knew that, you know, these like tidbits of things <laughs> from the different catechesis that I picked up that whenever mass is offered, the whole body of Christ, like the whole church is being offered. Mm -hmm. And like those things connected where it was like, um, and I'm saying the same thing you're saying, yeah. just like coming at it from a different direction where there's this recognition of this thing my family is doing, whether it's watching mass or praying morning prayer or reading the readings, we are exercising our baptismal priesthood and we're still participating now at a distance, but we're part of the body of Christ. We're still participating in the masses that are being offered up because mm -hmm. the whole of the body of Christ is being offered up at every mass. Um, and that connection point really sustained me. 
and not in a superficial way, but in a right. like, in, in, in a really deep and personal way for those several months. I, that was my experience also. And we've had, we had a lot of conversations about it as we were like processing through all of this. What is the Eucharistic liturgy in the reality where I am physically distant and cannot sacramentally receive the body of Christ? And it's not to say that sacramentally receiving the body of Christ isn't everything, but there's even more to the everything. Um, the Lord really brought me into a place of discovering, like you'd said, things really lined up, discovering what all of the everything and i'm still discovering it the the eucharistic liturgy is a profound mystery it's an astonishment everything that we just talked about and so now we're going to talk about destined everything that we just talked about and proclaimed the kerygma to be god sending his son to save us from sin and death and to save us for a share in his divine life it all happens, it is represented in the Eucharistic liturgy. Yeah. It's not just a story that we tell. It's not just a memory that we have in our heads. It is, well, we've really come to appreciate the, um, the, the term anamnesis too. It's a mystical here and now remembering, yeah. So, so, so to dive into that a little bit, destined is specifically, it's a charismatic retreat whose that's focus and uh, purpose is to, um, is to both give a catechesis on and proclaim the Eucharistic liturgy, but also to lead people into greater participation in the Eucharistic liturgy. So all that being said, what is, um, well, what is a specifically charismatic catechesis about the Eucharist? And how is that different than most of what we hear about the Eucharist within the church? Mm. So I think that I had just at least touched on it. Charismatic catechesis on the Eucharistic liturgy. Um, the short version can be said. Not the eight-hour day retreat version. Not the, not the destined retreat. <laughs> can be said, we'll start the way that, that Pope Francis starts. God loves you. And he pursues you in love. And he sent his son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue you from sin and death and to rescue you for a share in his divine life. And the Eucharistic liturgy is that astonishing reality happening, represented right here, right now. This is your participation in that mind-boggling goodness of God. That's, that's it. That's it. That's <laughs> charismatic catechesis on the Eucharistic liturgy. And so anybody who's heard that doesn't really need to do the Destin retreat because they're all like, cool, I got that. So, but they I, really did. The, uh, that was a key point in Pope Francis's document from last summer, Desiderio Desiderave, where he's talking about the liturgy. And he says something like, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was something like, um, either Christianity is an encounter with the living Christ or it's nothing. Or it's nothing. And, the, and he said, and the liturgy is precisely um, the means by which we encounter the living Christ. And then he's like, as if we were sitting at table with him, mm -hmm. as if we were hearing his voice, um, like, uh, like Mary did, as if we were able to, uh, uh, to touch him like Thomas did, right? He has this like, 
It's not an abstract remembering and participating and encountering. It's a like with our whole bodies yeah. remembering and participating. And there's, and there's nothing nostalgic about it, right? There's no looking back. It's looking at, it's looking in, it's in this moment. I was, um, I had read uh, through the catechism and prayed through the catechism, uh, the section on prayer um, during Lent this year. And the section on the Lord's Prayer, and everything is beautiful. Everything is amazing about it. But I was so drawn into the God of now, the God of today. The Eucharistic liturgy is the rescue mission, is the love, is the presence of now. It's the God of today. Yeah. I, I, I want to hit on, um, <laughs> there's a handful of, there's a handful of things. Um, there are particularly key moments in this retreat that we think are important, but I think more important than that, we have, we've seen people's responses to them, uh, mm -hmm. as important. Um, and, We've talked about some of them already. Like we've talked about the idea of theosis, the idea of salvation being not just being saved from sin, but being that, but being saved for something greater. Um, the catechism uses the term divinization. Yeah, yeah. Um, to uh, what um, a second Peter to have a share in the divine life. Yeah. Um, but there's other moments too. Um, and thinking especially, so we are recording this during, uh, the, uh, the octave of Easter, um, having just gone through the, uh, Triduum, uh, we, we talk about the crucifixion in a way, um, I think for a long time, the crucifixion was kind of an abstract thing for me. It was mm -hmm. something that I felt like I was supposed to feel guilty about. I okay. think I saw Mel Gibson's Passion movie when I was okay. too young. <laughs> and <laughs> there's a sense of like, this is something that that God did for me and I should feel bad that God had to do this for me. I think was the unspoken kind of like mm -hmm. layer to it. The way that, um, and you and you most often uh, give give the proclamation about the crucifixion. The way that you present that um, has been really powerful for me to hear. But then there's also like you address head on this idea that uh, Jesus came to save us from God in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And this is um, this moment. There are two of them. When we preach the charisma, there are two moments that I present as sounding like a bad God story. The one, um, why didn't he stop the, why didn't God stop the people, the first man and woman from sinning? And, and the catechism asks that question. So first of all, like, oh, thank God, I'm allowed to ask that question because I feel um, insolent. Yeah. Okay. I feel like a rebel, like insolent to ask the question. Don't ask that question. But the catechism asks, so why did God not stop the first man and woman from sinning? The answer is clear, because he's going to bring us to something better than what was lost. Okay. That's a showstopper. People's minds are really, and hearts are really beginning to be changed then. But on the cross the moment where Jesus cries out, Father, why have you abandoned me? And some really, really bad lyrics and catechesis and theology comes from that. The language, like, 
on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. So it sounds like Jesus has rescued us from the Father, from the angry Father. We have got to stop lying about who God the Father is. God the Father is the one who came into the garden and said, I see what happened here. I will fix this. That's who he is. Jesus was allowed to and agreed to experience every single moment of abandonment that any, every human being has ever experienced. He took it all onto and into himself. And in the same way, you and I, in our worst, hardest, saddest, most grief-stricken experiences say, God, where are you? In the same way, God, his answer is, I'm right here. That's where God was. That's where the father was when the son was dying. I propose, and I have many times proposed, that God the father has experienced, had experienced the suffering of his son Jesus on the cross in a way that every and any father could never experience every and any of their own children's suffering, that he was more intimately connected to it. I mean, only hours before, Jesus said, the Father and I are always one. This is a huge moment for people. Um, it was a huge moment for me. Sometimes when I proclaim it inside of myself, I, I, I feel just this, this huge transformation happen as I'm saying it. I think you really are that good. When people write to us, and we will get people, I mean, we both had the experience, Paul, where people will come up to us during the retreat, after the retreat, as it's over, and say to us what was important and what was, what was good. When people send emails seven months later and tell us what was lasting, The goodness of God the Father is almost, oh, almost every time tops the list. That's I, what's lasting. I think it stands out in part because, I think it stands out for people in part because it stands out in general. Not only is it difficult on a human level to stand in that place of tension and uncertainty and insecurity, like <laughs> watching the soldiers like, barreling towards you, uh, hungry in the desert. And on a human level, it's difficult to trust that God is good already. But then baked into, I'm not going to say baked into, present in a lot of Catholic um, catechesis and discussion is this suspicion of God the Father, or this suspicion of like the God of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was at, <clears throat> I was on vacation up north. This was a year and a half ago. This was a year and a half ago. So um, <laughs> uh, it was in up north Catholic parish, right? Uh, and you have no idea what you're going to get when you walk into an, <laughs> an up north Catholic parish. And that's up north Michigan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and walked into this parish and the priest gave a whole homily on one line from the old Testament reading, which was God was pleased to crush him in infirmity. And then he gave a whole homily on how, um, God, the father, uh, how, how, how the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And like, 
that's still present. Like that's still there. Um, and not always in that, not always in that explicit of a way, but not having this like bad God of the old Testament and good guy, Jesus. Right. Um, to save us from him. Yeah. Dismantling that, uh, dichotomy is really mm -hmm. big for people because that's, yeah. it's present yeah. in the church. It, it is. Um, Brad Jersak does a really good. Yeah. He just does a really good teaching on that. Um, that short, the, the gospel and chairs, right? Yeah. After you told me about that, I've watched it three times. I'm like, yep. The God who, who pursues us in love. And you had mentioned and quoted Catechese Tridende. Um, to bring us into intimate relationship, intimacy with the person of Jesus Christ, because it goes on, because only he can bring us to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's probably not exactly the right words, but only he can bring us to the Father, not hide us from, but bring us to. Yeah. We, we have to tell the story of God the Father. Better. Better. Yeah. Um, another key moment in the retreat that uh, you hit on, um, and I've, I've talked about that. I think I have dropped your name before talking about this with other people. Um, but the idea of glorified wounds. Um, oh, whoa, whoa. did you read the gospel for today? Hold on. No, no, no. Is it Thomas? No. So it's the end of the Gospel of Luke when the guys run back from Emmaus and as they're telling how they know how they knew him in the breaking of the bread, Jesus is among them and they're terrified. They think he's a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. I have a body. I have I have flesh. I have bones. And then he says. Shows them his hands and his feet. He says, here's my wounds. We went from recognizing him in the breaking of the bread to recognizing him in his wounds, in his glorified wounds. And he said, go ahead, touch them. One of the translations is, handle me. Yeah. Um. That's today. That was today's gospel. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa. I think we're going to talk about glorified wounds. So let's talk more about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to start with um, last week. So this was Holy Week on Wednesday during the Pope's uh, weekly catechesis. Um, he uh, and as soon as I read this, I sent it to you. I'm like, look, the Pope's talking about the same thing you're talking about. Um, only he uses the phrase luminous wounds luminous. instead of glorified wounds. But I want to read a passage from his catechesis last week. He says this, Brothers and sisters, the point is not whether we are wounded a little or a lot in life. The point is what to do with those wounds, the little ones, the big ones, the ones that leave their mark forever on my body and on my soul. What can I do with my wounds? What can you do with your wounds? No, Father, I don't have any wounds. Be careful and think twice before saying this. And I ask you, what do you do with your wounds, with the ones that only you know about? Mm. You can allow them to infect you with resentment and sadness. Or instead, you can unite them to those of Jesus so that your wounds, too, might become luminous. So what are and, the glorified yeah. wounds? Yeah. And so what, what, what can we know about the glorified wounds of Jesus Christ? And then what can we know about our own wounds? The wounds are, in today's gospel, the wounds are how this whole group of believers who were terrified at seeing him, they were afraid of God and they identified him and they recognized him in his wounds. 
what does that have to do with me? If it's an old story, it's a cool one, but it's more than that. And Pope Francis tells us what it is that I unite mine to his. And when mine become luminous or glorified, what does that mean? That means that you in the world can see something that can see in me, something that I know, something that has happened, something I understand, and some way that I have not merely survived. But some way that I have been resurrected. Some way that that now you can approach and actually handle them without hurting me. That can only happen if I unite them to Christ. I can say a lot of things. I can, I can do, and I have a lot of important self-discovery and techniques and things. I can only heal to a certain point. And actually, what I usually say is it's not really healing, it's just incorporating harm. Um, I figure out how to walk with the limp. But in intimacy with Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the things that have hurt me, that have harmed me, have wounded me, that have mangled me, are transformed. It's transfiguration. And it's transfiguration without, um, without erasure. Like it's, There's, um, it's still visible. It's still there. There isn't a like, um, a denial that those things happened. God will never ask us to dishonor our history. And, and in that, it's profoundly true, right? If what's true is what is real, there's no denial of reality here. Those wounds are still there. Those wounds are still there. But now, not only can they be handled without pain, but now they're now they're luminous. People's they they shine resurrection and hope and become the a witness to others and a witness to others our experience yours and mine when we do these um retreats we each do personal testimony and we talk about some really hard stuff. Your experience has been that people come up to you afterward and say that witness that you gave, your personal witness of the really hard stuff. And we've both stood there with people looking at us like, and so you seem okay. <laughs> like, but that really happened. I could tell it really happened because you, you described it in ways that are really true. And people look at us like, so Jesus, like, yeah, that's how we go from that terrible, sad story, that hard thing that happened to luminous, glorified wounds, him. So not to cut this off, but I have to cut this off because okay. we are now, uh, we're running up against our, an hour. Um, and there's a couple things that I want to do bef before we end. 
Um, one is we like to give uh, practical takeaways for listeners. Mm. Um, so my question for you is, if in this discussion, someone is hearing something new and something surprising and something compelling, um, if there's any type of this recognition of like, I want to believe in the God that they believe in, right? Mm -hmm. um, what's a concrete step someone can take to better know and encounter and have relationship with um, a God who is truly good? I think that making an active faith in the form of a goodwill, humbly proposed question or entreaty. So it would sound like this. God, I, I want to believe this about you. Please show me that you are as good as you say that you are. Ask him. I think that's an act of faith. And when he shows you, you know, fess up and go, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> I see. I see. I see that. I see what you did. Receive it. Here. Own it. Receive it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. In that... <clears throat> I mean, part of that um, is uh, is a real vulnerability on about not trusting that God is good in the first place. And instead of that being an area of shame, being an area of, uh, of offering to the Lord. That's precisely where he wants to meet me. Absolutely. So the opposite is, um, I have to really work hard at believing this and then show up for God. He's like, please, you know, let me show up for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we end, um, I want to. Is that people... concrete enough? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Because I, I think absolutely it is. All right. Um, good. Um, yeah, before we end, I want to uh, talk about, um, so uh, Monica and I wrote this retreat, Destin, um, and the two of us, along with um, uh, another friend and ministry partner, Megan Feeblecorn, have started um, a ministry called Practical Kerygma. And um, you can visit that at practicalkerygma.com. We have a couple of different retreats. We have a... Um, a practical Kerygma School, which is a formation program for um, ministers in the church. And when we say ministers, we just mean people, disciples, because um, ministry looks like taking care of your kids sometimes as much yep. as it does serving in the parish. But um, the mission of this ministry really is to, um, well, to do two things, to have keep uh, keep having conversations like this um, in the church in different ways and having real catechesis and real formation uh, about a God who is good. Um, and then also helping to make church spaces um, healthier. Healthier. The short version of the practical kerygma school aim is don't be weird. Yeah. <laughs> real people need the Lord. Be, be a real people. Yeah. They need to hear it. They Sure. Um, can you put the link for Practical Kerygma wherever this thing shows up? Absolutely. And this thing. Paul's, Paul's <laughs> life is invested. I'm calling it the thing. Yeah. So put the link somewhere for sure. We also have a new chaplain for Practical Kerygma, the ministry too. Yeah. And, Father, go, go ahead. ahead. Father Tom Wasilewski is the pastor of Old St. Pat in Ann Arbor. And several months ago, 
um, he agreed to have first conversations with us, to journey with us in the practical Kerygma ministry. And uh, he's now he's official and he's been marvelous. He's just been marvelous for us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's been great. Um, yeah, in some ways, this ministry has been going on for a couple of years, yeah. and, but it also feels like it's just getting off the ground, too. Um, we had a hard time getting traction. Yeah. And, and now here we are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and we, uh, had uh, a Destin retreat in Iowa, um, back in March, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, that was a fantastic debut. And then we have, uh, we have one in Ohio. We're presenting to staff and faculty at a Catholic school, um, a very large Catholic school if there's. 70 or 80 <laughs> staff and faculty Crazy. Um, I love that. and um, hopefully presenting more locally soon as well. But um, you are engaging in conversation at this moment about um, Destin going to Dublin too. Yeah. Which would be exciting. Everybody needs to pray for that. We need to go and preach the gospel in Ireland. That'd be fantastic. How do you um, look in, how do you look in green, Paul? <laughs> um, if people want to follow you, Monica, if you mm -hmm. want people to follow you, where mm -hmm. can they find you? So at Practical Kerygma. There's, <laughs> there's Excellent. yep, that's pretty simple. Contact info is there. And some of the things that we've written are also under the practical kerygma umbrella. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you for this conversation. Yay, it was a lot of fun. That was that went really fast. I thought, oh, an hour and ten, you know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, that was great. I, I think I told you when I first talked about having you on to promote the retreat, I was like, all we have to do is start talking about it. And that's that's promotion in and of itself. And it's also a privilege and a joy. Absolutely. Yeah. So the other thing that people can do practically speaking, if they are you know, um, the movers and the shakers and the the rainmakers get destined to come to your parish or diocese because we travel, have gospel, will travel. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. okay. So I have to do this closing now. Okay. Without Dominic. So um, if you like this video and this conversation, uh, please hit the like button um, and follow on YouTube. Also, um, uh, please leave a review on whatever podcast app you're using. Um, if you like the conversations we're having and want to go deeper, uh, check out Father's Heart Academy. We're building a, a community for folks who are looking for more compelling answers to their questions um, about the church and about the faith um, and who are looking for a more compelling and beautiful gospel. Um, also, check out Smart Catholics, the free online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations that are unafraid of doubts and questions. Uh, it's a community that is free of trolls and ads and toxicity, which is the opposite of Catholic Twitter. Um, so uh, check out Smart Catholics at smartcatholics.com. Well, that? Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> that doesn't sound like any fun at all. Yeah. No, Catholic Twitter is no fun it's at a, all. It's a zoo. Uh, yeah. So, um, and you can follow this podcast at popefrancisgeneration.com. So until next time, say a short prayer for us and for yourselves. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions because doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. Amen.